This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is the war between good and evil. In the first half, Larry Y. Wilson shares his address, The Return of the King. Then in the second half, Alan F. Packer speaks on Finding Your Way. Today I would like to talk about some of the big issues of our time through the lens of history and literature as well as the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a day of technological and scientific marvels. It is also a time of uncertainty, one in which many question whether or not faith and religion have a place in their lives or in the public square. You, too, will have to decide whether faith has an enduring place in your own life. In fact, there are dramatic changes occurring within this country as it relates to faith and religion. A recent Pew Research Center study reported a dramatic decline in the share of the U.S. population that identifies as Christian. From 2007 to 2014, in just seven years, it fell an extraordinary eight percentage points. While the drop is occurring across the board, it is especially pronounced among young adults. The world today poses many threats to faith in God, and the unfortunate fact is faith in God is waning. This is not the first time in history such a crisis of faith has loomed. There was a similar period around a hundred years ago. As the 20th century opened, the world held great hope and enthusiasm for the future. Science was supplying astounding breakthroughs at every turn, and the world seemed to be rushing toward a modern period when mankind, through its own self-generated progress and technology, might finally be able to solve the ancient problems of our world. Consider some of the very discoveries and inventions in just the first decade of the 20th century. The modern escalator was invented, perhaps a kind of metaphor of man's supposedly inevitable rise. Marconi sent the first transatlantic radio signal. The vacuum cleaner and the tractor were developed, harbingers of liberation from more arduous forms of labor. The Wright brothers flew the first manned flight. Albert Einstein stunned the world with his theory of relativity. Henry Ford produced over 10,000 cars on the first assembly line of its kind. The world saw its first talking motion picture and Marie Curie discovered radium. Cultural historian Richard Tarnas characterizes the period this way. Using his own natural intelligence and without the aid of Holy Scripture's divine revelation, man had penetrated nature's mysteries, transformed his universe, and immeasurably enhanced his existence. His own wits and will could change his world. Science gave man a new faith not only in scientific knowledge, but in himself. This gave rise to what is known as the myth of progress. That is the idea that mankind was somehow destined to rise inexorably on this wave of scientific progress to a new Eden. So it was that on the eve of the First World War, as the quest for power and political dominance reared its ugly head yet again in Europe, the response was a sadly naive one. If war must be fought because of the aggression of certain nations, then it must be fought. But most saw it as the war to end all wars. The belief was strong 
that the future was unquestionably bright. However, World War I did not end all wars. The staggering cost of this terrible war dealt a blow to pre-war optimism. World War I was expected to be brief. However, it lasted for more than four years. By the time of the armistice, more than nine million soldiers had died and roughly 37 million were wounded. New technologies such as machine guns, high explosive shells, poison gas, and the movement of troops by railway meant that more men could be killed more efficiently than in any previous war, and they were. On average, there were roughly 6,000 men killed every day of the war. 25% of the young men in France died in the war. In the face of such overwhelming tragedy, Christianity seemed irrelevant to many Europeans and Americans. Added to the blow of the terrible carnage of World War I came the death toll of Spanish influenza in 1918. It infected half a billion people and was estimated to have killed between 3 to 5 percent of the world's population, making it one of the deadliest diseases in human history. To many of those living at that time, the cosmos seemed to be indifferent and uncaring. Many of the old celebrated values, such as honor, sacrifice, and patriotism, seemed hollow. The realities of the new type of war were staggering. The horror of seeing men blown apart and then seeing and smelling their corpses rot for weeks in the cold mud of the trenches tried the faith that had sent men to fight for king, for country, and for God. As a result, the post-war decades of the 1920s and 30s were decades of disillusionment and cynicism. Faith in God was questioned widely and openly. The notion of inevitable progress was shattered, compounded by a feeling of helplessness and despair. Literature after the war reflected this bleak view, as in Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms and Eric Remark's All Quiet on the Western Front. Many hoped that the lessons learned in World War I would prevent another world war. Nevertheless, just two decades later, the world descended into a second global conflict. Not long after it ended, two works of literature appeared that went remarkably against the tide of despair. They were The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis and the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. These two men had both been soldiers in World War I and had seen its death and horrors up close. Both men lost many of their closest friends to the war. But remarkably, neither succumbed to the cynicism and atheism that was so often the war's aftermath. Their stories celebrate courage, honor, brotherhood, and faith, especially faith. What might we learn from them as we also face a time when faith is ebbing from the world? Following the war, Lewis and Tolkien went on to become university professors. They taught a generation of students struggling to make sense of the world at a time when faith was openly questioned. These two men, who by that time had become fast friends, had an answer. 
having come through this period with their own faith intact, they had a message for the next generation. The horrors of war had not manifest to them that faith in God had failed, but rather that faith must be viewed in its proper setting. That proper setting was the fallen world, where those who have the precious gift of faith must fight for good against the combined forces of the enemy bent on their destruction. One ever-present constant in their works is the reality of evil, indeed a personified ultimate enemy of all that is good. War did not evidence to Lewis and Tolkien that there was no God, but that there was a devil. If we do have faith, then we must hold on to that faith in light of the constant struggle that goes on in the world between the light and the shadow, as Tolkien called it. When my wife and I were raising our four children, we loved to read the Chronicles of Narnia to them. Perhaps you are familiar with the fantastical world of Narnia, where animals can talk and witches turn their enemies to stone. Narnia is discovered by four human children who find their way into it through a magical wardrobe. However, the power in these books derives not from flights of fantasy, but from the compelling Christian symbolism that permeates them. Lewis conveys his own absolute belief in the reality of Jesus Christ through his creation of Aslan, the lion, who serves as a redeemer for the world of Narnia. For C.S. Lewis, Christ was the most beautiful and important reality in our world. The Lord of the Rings, written by J.R.R. Tolkien, is another fantasy classic which tells of a quest to destroy the powerful and evil One Ring in the fires of Mount Doom. It, too, seems to be about creatures and places that never existed. And yet, what has made it the most popular book in the 20th century, second only to the Bible, is not its fantasy, but its realism. It is not just about brave hobbits fighting the armies of Mordor, but about the universal heroism of all of us, seemingly little people, who must fight against the evil of their own day in whatever way they can, calling on an inner strength they didn't know they had as they do their part in the great struggle that is always going on between ultimate good and ultimate evil. Some contemporaries criticized these two literary calls to faith. They accused Lewis and Tolkien of hearkening after virtues of a world long past. The disillusioned men and women of the post-war generations were turning to other things, newer gods, that promised to save mankind where the Christian and Hebrew gods had seemingly failed. Communism was particularly alluring to the post-war generations. But whatever gains were made by the forced socialization of countries in the name of communism came at a terrible cost in human lives and human dignity. Millions died in purges and famine. In truth, more people died at the hands of communist dictators than died in both world wars. Other war-weary souls turned to hedonism, the eat-drink-and-be-merry philosophy that characterized the Roaring Twenties. We might lump in with this group the morally chaotic years that followed the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s. But turning to the pleasures of the flesh has produced in our own time 
unprecedented levels of divorce and family breakdown, as it inevitably will. Perhaps the greatest number of those disillusioned with the death of the old world order turned to science, even though some thoughtful observers pointed out that it was science that had provided the efficient killing tools that made the two world wars so deadly, science still seemed to be an attractive solution for many. At least by applying the scientific method, many supposed one could know truth with certainty. People turned to Charles Darwin's evolutionary hypothesis to explain how we got here and to Sigmund Freud's theories to explain why people did what they did. However, science proved to be a disappointing God. We enjoy so many benefits from science, but it cannot provide the eternal truths by which to guide our lives. And it became apparent that scientists, too, were human, men and women who have the common weaknesses and frailties shared by all. Over time, science proved that it could be a worthy servant but made a poor master. Into a world swirling with such alternatives to a seemingly discredited Christianity, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien sent their tales of heroic quests. Both works surprised critics with their popularity. It was as if they had splashed cold water on the faces of their readers, reminding the downhearted that the world had always been a place where good and evil fought for dominance in the human heart. This is a fallen world. The scriptures call Satan the prince of this world. The works of both Tolkien and Lewis contain satanic figures that sought to cruelly dominate human beings, the white witch in one case, Sauron in the other. What does mankind need in such a world? We need forces to counter the boundless evil and a hero to lead those forces. One of the attractions of Lewis and Tolkien's works is this theme of our need for such a hero, a savior, if you will. On their own, all the characters and the stories we identify with come to a point of their own failure. They need someone stronger than they are. Surely part of the great appeal of the Narnian Chronicles and of the Lord of the Rings is the longing we discover within ourselves for a champion to fight those battles we cannot fight. Listen to this description of the hero Aragorn at the trilogy's ending. What does it sound like to you? But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, for it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow. And strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. And then Faramir cried, Behold the king! We can sometimes forget exactly what the great hope of Christianity is. It is not that Jesus Christ will fulfill all of our own natural aspirations for happiness, but it is hope in a triumphant future that only God can and will provide. We read in the Book of Mormon this advice from Alma, And now I would that ye should remember 
that as much as ye shall put your trust in God, even so much ye shall be delivered out of your trials and your troubles and your afflictions, and ye shall be lifted up at the last day. The triumph comes at the last day. We, too, await the return of a king. In the New Testament's 260 chapters, Christ's return is mentioned no less than 318 times. Clearly, the Lord intended for us to think about this and to be ready for it. The chief metaphor of the New Testament relating to the Second Coming is that of a servant who is prepared for his or her master's return. Each of us faces a choice. We can choose to see ourselves as the Lord's servants and humbly seek to know what He wants us to be doing with the talents and time He has given us. As such, we can seek to enlarge His kingdom and prepare it for His return. Or we may imagine that the story is all about us. Too many fall into this trap. They forget that they are His servants and begin to imagine that He is theirs. They think erroneously that Christ came to make all their dreams come true. For those in such a trap, prayer becomes like dropping memos on a desk in a heavenly office. Could you please take care of this as soon as possible? In the Lewis and Tolkien stories, the good guys are always humble about the lives they find themselves living. They know that they are part of a larger story, and they seek to carry out that part with faithful hearts. Frodo once expressed his wish that he did not have to undertake such a difficult task as was given to him. Gandalf replied, So do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Lewis and Tolkien rejected both a faithless view of life and an egocentric one. Their heroes understood that pain and loss would occur in this life, but that ultimate victory would be theirs. In their stories, many are the defeats and great the suffering that the truest servants endure while fighting for good in this world. In both Narnia and Middle-earth, hope was in the ultimate return of the king. You, too, find yourself in a world of conflict between good and evil. You, too, must decide what part you will play. The quality of faith in Lewis and Tolkien's works is not like the vague, undemanding spirituality that appears to be the preferred belief system of the millennial generation. It seems that no one wants to be labeled judgmental today. So our world has posited gods for itself that never judge and are never stern. They only affirm us and never deny us of anything we want. But that is not what our friends Lewis and Tolkien believed. Especially in the figure of Aslan, Lewis described a loving but stern God who came to save us from our sins and not in our sins. As we raised our children, my wife often told them, Aslan is not a tame lion, as a way to explain that we must come to eternal life on his terms, not our own. 
We must accept God's will for our lives, even when we don't fully understand it. Listen to this interchange in the silver chair, one of the Narnia Chronicles. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do? I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And that is the gospel's message to your generation. There is no other stream. Only one contains the water of eternal life. We find a similar metaphor in Lehi's vision of the tree of life. There is only one path that leads to the tree of life. The path is often obscured by mists of darkness emanating from an evil source. Without a hand on the iron rod, some wander in what are called strange paths, and our world is full of such paths. All who followed those paths were lost. We must be humble enough to follow His path and not our own. My brothers and sisters, the enemy of your souls will entice you to take these strange paths, to devote your precious life not to building God's kingdom but to any other cause. From Satan's point of view, any cause will do if it diverts God's children from the one path that allows them to hold fast to the iron rod and thus receive ongoing revelation. This world is full of alternatives that, if they become one's primary focus, can crowd God Himself out of our lives. Alternatives such as social media, fulfilling a bucket list, making lots of money, or an obsession with sports or social causes. There are endless paths in our world other than the one that leads to the tree of life. William Law, an 18th century clergyman, said it well. If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will, in the end, make no difference what you have chosen instead. So please remember, there is a storyline to this world's history. It is an epic tale. It involves a true king who is hidden from the world's sight for a time while his kingdom is ruled over by a wicked pretender to the throne a cruel despot who seeks to rule by war, blood, and horror. But the true king has true followers, humble servants who are able to see through all the lies and deceptions of the enemy and who seek to build allegiance to the true king. They seek to prepare a people who will be ready to receive him when he comes in glory and defeats the false king, rewarding those who are looking forward to his coming. I have spoken today about Lewis and Tolkien as examples of those who saw the ultimate reality behind all this world's conflicts and inequities 
its burdens and sorrows. They knew, as we read in Ether, that good cometh of none, save it be Jesus Christ. That is also my testimony. As we enter the Christmas season, we celebrate the first coming of the Savior to this world. In one of our cherished sacrament hymns, we sing, Jesus, once of humble birth, remembering how the King of Kings was born in a lowly stable. It is right that we celebrate that and teach our children to know the real reason we celebrate Christmas. But the song goes on. Jesus, once of humble birth, now in glory comes to earth. Once he suffered grief and pain, now he comes on earth to reign. Once forsaken, left alone, now exalted to a throne. As you think of the Christ child this Christmas season, remember also the sequel to that story, the future return of the king. As you reflect on the stable in Bethlehem, keep alongside it this glorious vision from the scriptures. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so great shall be the glory of his presence that the sun shall hide his face in shame, and the moon shall withhold its light, and his voice shall be heard. I have trodden the winepress alone and have brought judgment upon all people. And now the year of my redeemed is come, and they shall mention the loving kindness of their Lord and all that he has bestowed upon them according to his goodness and according to his loving kindness forever and ever. If we are prepared for his coming, if we are looking for it, that day will be a great time of reunion and rejoicing. Make your choice, brothers and sisters, to use your time in the cause that matters most, the one that leads to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I bear my testimony to you that he is the true king of this world. Jesus first came as the Christ child a meek and lowly lamb who offered himself for our sins. He is going to return in glory to receive the acknowledgement of every tongue and the homage of every knee. May we prepare for the return of our King is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is the war between good and evil. We've just heard from Larry Y. Wilson. After the break, we'll return with Alan F. Packer for Finding Your Way. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is the war between good and evil. 
Next is Alan F. Packer, a member of the Quorum of Seventy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled Finding Your Way. We live in some challenging times. More than 50 years ago, President Thomas S. Monson said, Today we are encamped against the greatest array of sin, vice, and evil ever assembled before our eyes. I thought to myself that whatever the conditions were 50 years ago, there is a greater array today. The war between good and evil is raging and intensifying. Satan is busy radicalizing and recruiting. You are needed. You must gain the skills, convictions, courage, wisdom, and confidence to help to make a difference for yourselves and others. I am grateful for the inspired leadership of the Twelve and the First Presidency to help us be prepared. Most of you are at a significant transition point in your lives. You are making life-changing decisions about your education, careers, marriage and family, and your religious practice after schooling and missions. You are making decisions as you transition from being dependent on goals set by others to being independent and self-reliant, setting your own goals and making your own way. Many of those decisions are not as clear or as easy to make as you would like them to be. Trying to find your way is a challenge. Today I would like to share a few lessons I have learned that may help you find your way. I invite you to take notes of any actionable takeaways. Later you can decide how to act on what you hear. After graduating from BYU, I took a job with a Boeing company in Seattle, Washington. I was soon called as an assistant scoutmaster in our ward. One year, we spent the summer taking hikes, including a 50-miler around Mount Rainier. The early hikes prepared us physically and helped us develop the skills needed for the ultimate hike. We learned how to use maps and the compass and set checkpoints along the trail to find where we were and how to get where we wanted to go. It was a wonderful time for us. For the scouts, the hike in the Cascades were an exciting adventure and an end in itself. But for us as leaders, it was an opportunity to teach them the skills, character traits, and testimony needed for life's journey. Our journeys of life is like these hikes. We each choose our destination and path. However, after the judgment at the end of this life, we will be assigned a place to live and things to do based on our decisions and actions here. Choose wisely the best path as described by the plan of salvation. Map your course by learning as much as you can setting your checkpoints, and following your plan. Throughout literature, there are stories told of individuals who are destined for greatness or of royal birth who were sent away from their homes. They did not know who they were, their heritage, or their destiny. You know about Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker, and perhaps a few others. Luke Skywalker was sent away and hidden. 
he only gradually learned who he was. Being chosen did not eliminate his trials or tribulations. They were important to develop character and skills needed to achieve his ultimate destiny. You were sent away from a royal court without memory of who you are or what your final role and responsibility to be. Each of you are of a royal birth and heritage. You are a son or daughter of heavenly parents. You are destined to become a king or a queen, to have a family and royal responsibility. God is the author of the plan to qualify you for this royal birthright. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is here to help us. President Boyd K. Packer has said many times the ultimate end of all activity in the Church is that a man and his wife and their children might be happy at home, protected by the principles and laws of the gospel, sealed safely in the covenants of the everlasting priesthood. Every law and every principle and power Every belief, every ordinance, every ordination, every covenant, every sermon, and every sacrament, every counsel and correction, the sealings, the calls, the releases, the service, all these have as their ultimate purpose the perfection of the individual and the family. Just as your life to this point is preparing you for the rest of your life, your time on earth is preparing you for what you will be doing in the eternities. To qualify, you must be worthy. God has counseled, I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. The plan is designed for every human being to qualify for exaltation. All can qualify. All can succeed. While everyone can qualify, each must earn it individually. There is no entitlement or option to delegate this to someone else. No one else can do it for you, not even the Church. It is hard work, but it is worth it. President Russell M. Nelson said, Only as an individual can you keep the commandments of God. Only as an individual can you repent. Only as an individual can you qualify for the ordinances of salvation and exaltation. Elder D. Todd Christofferson recently taught the following, God will not live our lives for us, nor control us as if we were his puppets as Lucifer once proposed to do. Nor will his prophets accept the role of puppet masters in God's place. You are not expected to be a puppet of God, the Church, or anyone else, but are expected to take responsibility for your future. You are the only one who can earn it. There are important decisions to be made. President Packer said the crucial test of life does not center in the choice between fame and obscurity nor between wealth and poverty. The greatest decision of life is between good and evil. 
The Book of Mormon teaches us men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil. The Holy Ghost will help you know all things you need to know and do. Some people delay making important decisions, waiting for perfect conditions. It could be waiting to find a perfect companion, waiting until the outcome is guaranteed, or until job or incomes are secure. Some are afraid of making a mistake. The greatest mistake may be failing to act. Most important relationships and achievements do not come ready-made off the shelf. You must pay the price to achieve the outcome you desire. While serving as a counselor in a bishopric here at BYU, I once interviewed a freshman sister at the beginning of the year. I asked her why she had come to school, to which she responded, I am here to marry a general authority. I happened to know at the time that all the general authorities were taken. <laughs> what this sister did not know is that she had to fall in love with a young man with the potential and together help him become a person who could be a general authority if called. Moving forward in life requires faith. That is part of the plan. President Packer shared this experience. Shortly after I was called as a general authority, I went to Elder Harold B. Lee for counsel. He listened carefully to my problem and suggested that I see President David O. McKay. President McKay counseled me as to the direction I should go. I was very willing to be obedient but saw no way possible for me to do as he counseled me to do. I returned to Elder Lee and told him that I saw no way to move in the direction I was counseled to go. He said, The trouble with you is that you want to see the end from the beginning. I replied that I would like to see at least a step or two ahead. Then came the lesson of a lifetime. You must learn to walk to the edge of the light and then a few steps into the darkness. Then the light will appear and show the way before you. Then he quoted these 18 words from the Book of Mormon. Dispute not because ye see not. For ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Deciding on the most important things first will help make other decisions easier. The scriptures teach to seek first the kingdom of God. From the scriptures we read, Before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God, and but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Before each hike with the scouts, we studied the guidebooks, the maps, and the trails we would hike. We would ask or talk to those who had already hiked the trails. Over time, we learned which books and people were most accurate and gained confidence in using and following them. Knowledge of the areas where we would be hiking led to better decisions and outcomes. You must do the same with your journey of life. 
Nowadays, Google is the go-to source of information when someone has a question, but it is not necessarily an automatic source of reliable, trustworthy information. The information returned to a query is ranked by how much someone paid for or the frequency something has been referenced. The order of information is not recommended by its accuracy, value, or the reliability of its source. There are many sources that will give you false information. This is one of Satan's tactics. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the plan, are found in the scriptures, the words of the living prophets, and through the Holy Ghost. These are the reliable maps, guides, and compass you need for life's journey. Our regular and continuous study of the scriptures, the words of the living prophets, will lead to confidence and trust in the Lord's plan. The Holy Ghost will help you develop a testimony. Continued study, prayer, and experience will expand your knowledge and understanding of the principles and deepen our conversion. God's plan provides for the First Presidency and the Twelve and other leaders as guides and resources for us. They are called by prophecy and revelation. The brethren hold the priesthood and have the delegated keys to perform needed ordinances we cannot get in any other way. The role of the brethren is to represent God to his people, as all prophets have done in the past. These men, past and present, are the first to say they are not perfect, but like all members, are striving to become as the Savior commanded. Some people will hold up a yardstick of perfection to them and find them wanting. That measure is just a distraction from the real question. Christ, after all, was the only perfect person who lived on the earth. The real question is, did these men have and feel a divine mission? The fact that these men are not perfect does not bother me. It actually gives me hope in my quest for exaltation. To know the Lord does bless and guide and will honor them. Follow the teachings of the prophets is our test, not theirs. Like a compass, the Holy Ghost is another source that can teach us all things we need to know and do. Even when our minds are dark or foggy, when we are alone or with a crowd, or when we are in trouble, our decisions and lives will be better by understanding and living the gospel as taught by the brethren and witnessed by the Holy Ghost. This is the quest of a lifetime. The gospel of Jesus Christ includes the eternal truths or laws, covenants and ordinances needed for mankind to enter back into the presence of God. Sometimes I have found it helpful for people to understand the gospel by comparing it to a connect-the-dot diagram. Think of the individual principles as the doctrines or principles. The lines of the diagram are like the relationship between principles. The picture that is revealed when the lines are added is the image of the gospel. 
The quality of the image depends on the number of dots and lines that we know and understand. In the gospel, there are some fundamental principles which are foundational. They include the mission of the Savior, commandments, ordinances, judgment, forgiveness, faith, repentance, and baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, the creation, fall, atonement, resurrection, restoration, prophets, and priesthood. With fundamental principles, we have a basic understanding of the gospel and the plan of salvation. These are enough to gain a testimony. As we grow in understanding, we learn of additional principles, and we are able to see a much richer image of the gospel and of a loving Heavenly Father. The principles of the gospel do not stand alone, but have connection with other principles, for example, justice and mercy, sin and the atonement. Death and the resurrection each have a relationship. The principles of justice and mercy illustrate the need for a connection between the two. If the connection between the two was eliminated, the plan would be destroyed. Both the principles and the relationships are needed. In a connect-the-dot diagram, each dot holds a position needed for the creation of the image. If the dots are moved around or reordered, the image changes. The resulting image will be distorted, obscured, or not represent anything at all. The same is true with the principles of the gospel. God established each principle to achieve His work in bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Individual principles cannot be fully understood without being placed in the gospel context. That would be like trying to see a picture with only one dot. For example, some people have contended that Jesus Christ's teaching of love is inconsistent with his teachings of keeping the commandments. But when considered in the full gospel context of qualifying for exaltation, God's insistence on keeping the commandments actually shows a greater love for his children. Parents call this tough love. Any parent would keep a child from running in front of a car in spite of a child's complaining about the parent being mean or unloving. Principles must be considered in the context of the full gospel. Surely you can see that neither God nor his church leaders would change the principles at the fancy of individuals, groups, or governments and nations. To change would put God's children at risk and destroy the plan which was created to save mankind. So the study of principles and their relationships to other principles and the gospel, learn as much as you can. Help others to do the same. This will help strengthen testimonies. A testimony of the gospel is made up of testimonies of individual principles. Collectively, they combine to create a powerful testimony of the gospel and the Church. This testimony will sustain us if there is a trial of faith about one principle, we can rely on our testimonies of other principles 
and our testimony of the gospel as a whole. The scriptures teach, Whatever principle of intelligence we obtain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. Learning is a continuous process during our lives. There will come a time when you will be confronted with something you have not learned that causes you to question. To have a question is good and an opportunity to learn. So learn with faith. I have a few suggestions. First, take time to fully study it out. Gather and learn all the facts with faith by study, discussion, and prayer. Spiritual things are only learned through spiritual methods, not mortal means. Develop the spiritual skills before trying to judge. Two, do not abandon everything you already know. Learn how the new information fits into the doctrines and things you already know. Three, use trustworthy sources, the scriptures, the teachings of the brethren, and the Holy Ghost are trustworthy sources. Bishop Christer Sendall, a former dean of the Harvard Divinity School, has counseled seekers of truth to ask questions of those who believe rather than a non-believer. Four, put things in context, evaluate something in isolation, independent of surrounding principles, conditions, or facts, leads to incorrect conclusions. Events of the past should be considered in the context of the past, not present-day social norms, laws, or conditions. Words can have different meanings in different time periods. Words spoken in 1830 can have different meanings and implications than how they are used today. Use the right yardstick to measure and judge. And fifth, Allow for the possibility that when there is a question, there may be not enough information available to readily answer it right now. In this case, you will have to exercise faith, patience, and trust in your testimony you have of other principles in the gospel, and of course, trust in God. These lessons have helped me and others follow the path They will help you find your way in these challenging times. Prepare yourselves. Like my hikes with the scouts, we can safely travel life's journey by relying on the maps of the scriptures, the words of the living prophets, and the compass of the Holy Ghost. God's plan and desire is that all are successful in reaching their destination. Rise up and qualify for your heritage and destiny. You can do it. I wish to bear solemn witness that God does exist, that Jesus is the Christ, that the Holy Ghost can guide and teach and sustain us. I know the plan. It will help us achieve our heritage and our destiny. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was The War Between Good and Evil, with thoughts from Larry Y. Wilson and Alan F. Packer. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.